You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to TFM's local books and comics show for Star Trek. I am so excited to be here, and this is going to be a very special episode, a very different episode than many of our episodes here. We are going to forego any news because we just have an incredible interview, and we're going to be talking to James Swallow, and so I'm so excited to have him here. Uh, before we dive into that, of course, you know, make sure you're uh, following us everywhere, all over social media. Of course, you know, Track FM on Twitter. We've got Instagram you could follow. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash FM. Of course, you can find the podcast here wherever you're getting your podcasts. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed and uh, that way you get the shows as soon as they drop. Of course, you also want to make sure if you get a chance, uh, hit us up with a star rating review over on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us uh, over at the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference on Facebook. And if you'd like to talk to listeners from all over the world, you can join there and uh, you know talk about what's going on here at Literary Treks or any of the other shows. And uh, do want to just say a quick thank you to our associate producers here through Patreon. Uh, we've got Casey Pettit and Greg Rosier. Really appreciate both of these gentlemen supporting the network through Patreon. Uh, now, if you like what we do here on Trek FM, please go to patreon.com slash Trek FM and see how you can be part of our team. But with all of that preamble, I think it's time just to jump into our interview here with James as we talk about the ashes of tomorrow. James, welcome back to Literary Treks. Uh, and how I, I got to ask before we get to anything else, how are you feeling? Well, um, Certainly, I'm happy to be here, Matt. Thank you once again for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Um, as for, like, in, in a larger scope of things, um, it's complicated, right? You know, um, we're kind of on the edge of the end here with the Coda series, so I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I'm really happy with the way the books are being accepted right now, getting a lot of really great positive feedback from people. But there's this kind of leavened with a bit of sadness as well that we are kind of we are into this running down the curtain now. Um, but uh, I think I'm, I'm hoping that people uh, will, will feel the same way I do, which is kind of, you know, I'm sad that it's ending, but I'm happy that I've taken the journey. Yeah, no, I can totally understand that. I, I mean, for you and Dayton and David, and of course, everybody else who's been involved in this project of, you know, the, the lit verse, I, I can't imagine what it's like to, kind of see it finally, you know, kind of come to a close so we can open up a new door uh, and, and and what, you know, they'll be able to do with the books. Um, but, you know, this has just been such a massive project. And like 
the authors, I mean, I, I know fans have that have been invested in this for so many years, you know, almost, I guess it's over 20 years now. Uh, you know, this is this is a, a thing. I think there is that immense sadness and joy and all those things mixed together, which I think more than anything, that that's kind of one of the things that I found, you know, moving into this book was just how much it really hit me. Uh, so you definitely got me in the feels uh, many, many times. And part of that was tying in DS9. And, you know, the lit verse with DS9, the characters have kind of been all over the place at this point. You know, it, of the franchises, I think Deep Space Nine was the one to which, because of the end of the series and then the way that things ended up with the uh, the way it was written, I, we didn't get a lot of, like, Deep Space Nine characters spending a lot of time with each other even when in the books and so first i just wanted to ask uh, and this was a question that uh good friend ryan had um and i thought it was great was you know did you guys when and especially you writing this book did you consult with uh david r george the third to kind of get an idea of where all the characters have been um and had there been any idea of like having him maybe write any of the lead-in books if that had been approved well, there, um, there was originally an idea uh, of, a, of a fourth book. Is, I don't know if you might have heard Dayton Ward talking yes. about this, the, what we call the breadcrumbs book, which would have been the idea of it would have been a standalone novel um, that would have been a kind of stealth entry into the Coda series. So the, the concept of it was is that you would read the book and you'd think it was a regular standalone book. And then towards the end, events would start to happen and you realize, oh, actually, this is a prequel to the Coda trilogy. And scheduling issues meant that we couldn't do that. So it ended up being the, the three-book series that you see now, which is Dayton's Moments of Sunday, Mine Ashes of Tomorrow, and uh, Dave Mack's upcoming Oblivion's Gate. You know, we did talk about having other writers on board. Una McCormack's name was, was definitely in the mix as well. I know that David's was as well. But in the end, it's the, just the vagaries of the production schedule meant that we couldn't connect as well as we would have liked with those other writers. So we took what had already been written and we took the the kind of the outline that we had for the story and we said well as much as we would like to continue to explore a lot of those kind of hanging threads the the issue we had was like how many of these threads do we tie up in these books and what do we leave untied and we really wanted to try and to to tie up as much as we possibly could and it's difficult you know we, even we, even though we've got kind of over 300,000 words of novels to tell to, to tie up all this stuff we couldn't possibly dot every i and cross every t so we wanted to try our best to fill tick tick all of those boxes but it wasn't always possible so um you know i would have liked to have to have connected more with what david uh, intended but in the end we were kind of you know pushed for time and we had to kind of take it in the direction that we did that's not just you know i hope nobody would think i'm that's disrespecting the work that david's done at all i mean i try my best to, to pay homage to, to the, the stuff that he did, because one of the things with this series, the whole idea of it is that we we were kind of reaching back to sort of salute everybody who's come before us. And David certainly uh, did a lot of work to, to create and build out the the current version, the current iteration of the, the Deep Space Nine characters. And I tried to stay as true to that as I could. Yeah, and I, I don't, I mean, 
I don't think anybody would would take what you said it's any way disrespectful. Um, you know, I, I think you know it does come down to, and and that's the difficulty in anything in life is is being able to you know make things work time wise. You know, and obviously this is a whole series about time and not having enough of it uh, sometimes, and so uh, I think that makes complete sense that. The struggle in the series is also the struggle sometimes with the authors uh, and and trying to fit things together for everyone, and it doesn't always work, and and that's just part of life. So I think that's completely understandable. Um, you know, obviously tying in here with Deep Space Nine and having it be and those characters have a much bigger presence here in this story. Um, you know, I just love to hear you talk about working with you know. Cisco and bringing him back and of course you know giving him that connection with the prophets again working again with Kira um, you know specifically I was thinking of those two and just how um, you know they had really moved in different directions and then bringing them back together I, I would love to hear you talk about that well this is um, this is although this isn't my first technically it's not my first Deep Space Nine story you know my first uh, prose full-length novel for the Star Trek f- fiction line was uh the terror no no mm-hmm. but this is actually the first time i kind of got my hands on the core cast of ds9 so it's my first time writing you know a meaty role for benjamin cisco for for kira Nerys, for quark for odo for Roe, for all of the other characters all the other ds9 characters it, um so that was an exciting thing for me to do you know the novel opens in with a inside viewpoint of like mm-hmm. from from Benjamin Cisco, we're in we're in Ben Cisco's head as he's sort of like rushing to a you know to answer a distress call on board a ship, and, for, and so for me to to get into that character's boots, um, that was a that was a great challenge because I never really had the opportunity to write him before. Uh, and the thing the thing about Cisco is his heart, right? That's always the thing I, I've always felt about you. that character is the strongest thing. He has this this really strong heart to him, mm, and yeah. I wanted to kind of connect to that. And I think Kira has the same aspect. I think it's one of the reasons why the two characters in the show kind of connect so well is that they they at their core they're very similar people, despite the fact they come from completely different upbringings and the life experiences they've had are totally different. There's that one thread that runs through both of them that is very very much the same person. So I. I looked at them as kind of like they're in certainly in the early stages of the book, they're kind of the two pole stars for the narrative and the connecting thread between the two of them is this connection they have with the, the aliens in the wormhole with the, with the prophets. And it's Cisco's connection to the prophets. You know, he has, he has this vision in the opening chapter of the book, which is of this terrible apocalypse that's occurring. And he realizes it's a terrible warning. Something really bad is going to happen. And the prophets are reaching out to him and saying, you know, you have to get involved in this. And Kira has a similar experience. You know, this is a different version of Kira who now is, you know, she's essentially a monk, mm-hmm. you know, in this, in this monastery. She's going through this, this, you know, this whole kind of, she's gone through this change in her, in her outlook into the world. And she's gone through this re- religious sort of experience. She has having the same vision, but she's seeing it from a different point of view and she's experiencing it in a different way. And so the two of them are being drawn together, even though they, at this stage, the early stages, but they don't even know it. And so for me, it was interesting to play with that duality, the similarity and the duality of those characters, to have them sort of come together. And and they are the core, they're they're the sort of the motivating forces in like the first third of the book. 
so I, I, I greatly enjoyed writing those characters. Yeah, I thought, uh, and it was something really special to see. And I think, you know, I think back to, uh, you know, Deep Space Nine and, and obviously just the struggles that, you know, Kira had for so long to kind of accept Benjamin Sisko into her life, you know, because he's the emissary. But at the same time, he's somebody who becomes a friend, you know, and by the end of the series, you know, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing because it's her and Jake standing there waiting for him to return. And how much he's meant to them in their lives and how much she's completely changed, you know, as a character in the sense that she's been able to let go of so much of her anger and, and all of those things because of her relationship with him and the way that, like, the prophets have moved in her life, you know. And um, I think it makes it really incredible. So I loved that, like you said. I really responded to kind of seeing that, you know, he's the emissary, she's the hand of the prophets, and that. I really liked the way that you brought that together and, you know, allowed, I I think, something that David had done, you know, uh, all the way back in the day of of making Kira the Hand of the Prophets and making that mean something in the end was really nice because, of course, tons of spoilers, but, you know, Kira making the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, and... The, and that's so true to her character because she would obviously make the sacrifice not only for Bajor, but at, honestly for the rest of the universe anytime because that's just who she is, as is Cisco. And so just bringing those two together, it was really nice to get to see them play with each other again. And it was one of those things because as I'm reading the book, I'm just lamenting. And it, obviously, it's a huge lament because all of it's ending, but... I'm lamenting that we're not going to see these characters again because I absolutely just loved seeing them back on screen. And and it was it was difficult because there <laughs> that's what I've wanted for a long time uh in the novels uh, to have more of the Deep Space Nine crew back and you did it here but then it's ripped away again and it was just like well just take my heart and stomp on it. Thanks James. Well that's the see that's the that's the, the 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 note that we hit again and again through this series is is bittersweet. Yeah. Is that you know we we see these characters um, that we love and we care for, and and we feel kind of you know happy to have them, but it's sad as well to because this is the ending mm-hmm. of that story, and this is those characters passing passing on into a, like you know into history as it were into myth and legend, right? That's that's what's going on with these characters. And, uh, you know, certainly you, you touched on there about the thing about the Hand of the Prophets that, you know, that, that David came up with is, is that was a really interesting idea. And it was um, one thing that to be clear of with, with the all of Coda is although there's three different books and you see three different authors' names on those books, if you look in the front page of that, you'll see underneath the title of every book, it says Star Trek Coda by David Ward, James Wall and David Mack. And it's important to, for me to be clear about this is that the story as a whole is a creation of all three of us. Is it's not, we didn't just go to our corners and do our three stories. Is we broke that entire narrative. And, uh, you know, originally it was going to be me who was going to write the first book. And a scheduling issue meant that we ended up changing it around. So there is a shared responsibility between all three of us across that trilogy of books. And, uh, you know, when we decided that you know, the, the second book was going to have this focus on the DS9 characters, Dave Mack was the one who said, you know, we have to pay off the hand of the prophets, we, you know, that because that's such a powerful moment, mm-hmm. a powerful yep. thing in Kira's character. We have to pay that off. 
And, um, you know, we're getting into full spoiler territory here. You know, with, with the end of the story, when the destruction of DS9-2 happens, once we kind of had that idea, it's like, well, it has to be Kira who pushes the button. Right. She has to be the one, you know, the choice has to be made by her. And, you know, arguably, you can say, well, you know, but Cisco's kind of the, you know, the, the head man in the room. He's the boss. Shouldn't it have been him? But it felt like, no, it's, it feels like a truthful payoff to all of Kira's character development that she should be the one to make this kind of monumental decision. Because after all, you know, Cisco is the emissary and an emissary is, a, is the, you know, a bearer of news, a bearer of information, right? But the hand of the prophets, literally the hand, the the you know the hand that moves the 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 action that pushes forward kira is exemplifying the will of the prophets in that moment so we felt like that payoff had to be in her hands at the end of the story and i think it plays out really well because she goes through this powerful sort of tragic choice but at the end of the day only she could do it because she's the only character who who would fit in in that space and make it feel truthful and honest Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely no and I, I think you rightly keyed into, you know, the fact that she is legitimately enacting the will of the prophets at that point. You know, her and Cisco have been both told what needs to happen. And like her being their hand is the one to make that come to fruition in real space and time. You know, she is their avatar uh, <laughs> to go all the way back to the original lit verse, uh, you know, that's, that's who she is. And, and so I think that makes absolute sense. And I love that. And I think one of the things I really liked um, in the book too, was obviously there's some questions about whether or not this is our Bashir or not, I guess, because it seems a little bit like he is, is he from the mirror universe? Maybe who knows? I don't, or is he combination of those? I don't know, but I can answer that question if you want. Yes, please do. Yes. I would love to know the answer. Okay. Well, the definitive answer is that yes, he is our bishop. Okay. He's not the mirror. Thank God. Uh, because what I, this is the moment that first got me the most was him being told that Ezri had died. And I lost it because Ezri is one of my favorite characters. Um, I've all, and and the Dax characters in general, I love them. I really enjoyed the relationship between her and Bashir. I was always happy that they had gotten together in the end uh, of Deep Space Nine, and then of course the books tore them apart and they went their separate ways. But his reaction to her death and the fact that that was the moment that kind of sparks him back, it seemed perfect mm-hmm. to me. Uh, it didn't seem too easy. It just, if there was anything that was going to, you know, knock him out of, of his, you know, subconscious, basically, it would be the death of Ezri. And I, I mean, again, I just, it killed me, you know, inside to, to have to deal with that. Um, and I, I, I loved having him back, but also, you know, I, I love that you guys didn't, you didn't bring back the Bashir we knew, you brought back the Bashir who's been through hell, literally. Uh, you know, yeah, he's. I mean, I mean, I've got to be honest with you. That scene, um, I wish I could have done more with that. Time constraints meant that we couldn't have. You know, I would have loved to have kind of lingered a little bit longer in that scene and done a little bit more with it. But the time constraints we had, man, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in this story, and that you know, and we didn't perhaps have, have as much opportunity to 
to kind of stop and, and, and linger on that moment. That scene, um, and again, I have to give credit to Dave Mack because in the original outline, Dave was the one who said, this is, this is how we bring him back. This is the moment. And it was one of those kind of lightning bolt. It's like, oh, that's perfect. Is that the, you know, it's this, this terrible tragedy is the thing that shocks him out of this state of kind of catatonia where he's been just sort of mentally adrift. Uh, and he's, you know, Garrick's looking after him, but it's this sort of situation where he's never going to change. And, you know, the idea that um, Bashir is just going to get old and gray sitting there staring out the window for the rest of his life. And then this terrible tragedy happens and it shocks him back into some semblance of the man he was. But this is the broken Bashir, right? You know, this is the guy who's gone through hell in the, the Section 31 stories, who's, you know, really just been deconstructed and put back together. He's definitely not the same man that we think he is. And, you know, he's, he's you know, in, in, he's not quite right. And, you know, and you'll see a little bit more of that develop, you know, through Oblivion's Gate. Dave kind of explores that in, in greater detail. He's, um, he's walking wounded in this story, but he also has a very important role to play. And it's, the, it's Ezri's death that motivates him, and gives him kind of the energy to get back out into the world. And then how that expresses itself, you'll see that play out in Oblivion's Gate. And I love that idea because, you know, when you think about, in many ways, like Bashir almost reminds me of the Obi-Wan Kenobi of Star Trek in the sense that he's lost everybody he loves, you know, like, and especially by the end of this story, Everybody that he's loved is gone. They're dead or, like, they're not around anymore, you know? Like, I think Garrick is probably the only one he has in his life that isn't dead, it seems like. Uh, you know, I mean, because, it, it, you know, obviously Miles makes the ultimate sacrifice here as well to make sure, that you know, that, that Kira is able to do what she needs to do. And so, like, just when you think about everything that that, that he's given you know, and scene taken away from him. And at the same time, the entire universe and the multiverse that he, he is aware of may also extinct, be extinct soon. Like the weight that he carries, you know, uh, it is much, it reminds me much of like Obi-Wan Kenobi of the weight that he carries. Everyone he's loved has died or been taken away from him or turned evil. You know, it's like, what? How do you still have hope when 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 that happens? And and Bashir is a, is like you said, walking wounded. And and by the end of the book, you kind of realize just in some ways, like you you said, you know, he he says fairly, you know, there about the the other universe. It's it's a little bit scary, you know, like and that's and that's exactly what we want you to, you know, the the whole point of that moment at the end where he kind of comes out of the shadows with this slightly kind of demonic glint in his eye. We want people to go, you know, the, the, I think it's Picard says, oh, Dr. Bashir, I presume. Mm -hmm. But the kind of subtext is there. Yeah, but not the one you think. Yes. You know, and he's not like, like it's not literally like he's a different version of, of Julian Bashir, as in from a parallel reality. He's he's our Julian, mm -hmm. but he's changed. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what we've done with the lit verse all along is we changed and evolved these characters. And Julian is, you know, like all of these characters in the books, approaching the end of his arc. But the man he is now, as I said, is way different from the guy that yeah. we first met, you know, back in episode one of the 9 Well, and, and 
on top of that, like I kind of mentioned, you know, Miles, you know, makes the ultimate sacrifice here, which funny enough, somebody had made a joke about. I'm so surprised that Miles just wasn't like left as the last person in the universe because that just seems to be his lot in life. Uh, I, I was reading that, I think, on Trek BBS. But um, I, you know, it also does seem perfect that Miles, you know, he his last act is to engineer the S out of something because that's who he is, you know, and, and he, he's, uh, you know, even talk about the idea uh, you had him in there about, you know, whether or not he would become an officer. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm fine being a non-com still, you know, and that's just who O'Brien is. He is the blue collar hero. Um, and he is in many ways, um, the Atlas of DS9. He's always been holding it up, oh, yeah. you know. And um, I think I think yeah. I think that's what we. I think that actually is the na- something of the name of the episode when we talked about him on the orb years ago, Chris and I. But I just uh, this seemed like the perfect end for him that he wouldn't even think about what was required. He would just do it because that's who Miles is as a character. You know, he's not a guy who seeks glory. You know, he's not looking for promotion. You know, he just does what he does and he does it really well. And in that scene at the end, it's like, you know, you said the phrase you you said he engineered a solution. That's what he is. He's an engineer. He has an engineer's mindset. And in this and in this circumstance, you know, when everything is coming apart around them, Miles looks at that problem and goes, How do I fix this? Because that's his approach. That's always his approach. How do I fix this problem? And even if it is an insurmountable, unfixable problem, he's still going to damn well try to fix it to the best of his ability. And that's that's him through and through. You know, he wouldn't consider what 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 lies beyond that. It's like, here's the problem right in front of me. I've got to fix it. And if it means I have to make a sacrifice, that's what he does because he is a man. He's a man of duty. And, you know, and his honor comes through that duty. I don't think he's somebody who's he's not looking for medals or plaudits, right? You know, there's that. You know the whole joke in the, the lower decks joke about the statue of O'Brien, right. right? Being being a hero. I mean, um, I wanted to give him a scene that's worthy of him having a statue made of him, and I felt like you know I even toyed with the idea of, of putting that in as a line of dialogue, and I thought it was maybe a little too have him say like, "Oh, well, if something bad happens to me, make a statue of me," right? And I thought maybe that's a little bit too on the nose because <laughs> we've got plenty of meta jokes, plenty of gags in in the you know little nods and stuff, and I didn't want to go kind of too far down the road. But I wanted him to have a scene that would be worthy, worthy of song and, and legend after the fact, right? He's just this, you know, this he's an ordinary guy and he just he just gets on with the job. And and that to me, that's the ethos of that character through and through. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was beautiful and, and you know, obviously if if we were going to see, you know, Deep Space Nine kind of meet its noble end. You know, I, this is kind of the way I wanted it to happen with all of these characters working together. And you you take Roe and Quark are gone, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, some of the biggest deaths that we've seen, you know, and, and then Nog making the ultimate sacrifice on Wink Wink, that California class starship, um, which was which was wonderful. But I, I just... One of the things that really struck me with especially like Quark and Roe making these sacrifices was the way in which, again, you took characters who had had such a development and brought them to an end 
that felt like it fit with the journey that they've been on. That they would go from places where, you know, Roe is an angry, you know, a person who's willing to give her life for nothing, you know, she, because she just has so much anger and she doesn't know what to do with it. You know, Quark, would he give his life for anyone other than his latinum? Eh. And then Nog, the, the journey from, you know, to be the first Ferengi in Starfleet. And so... I mean, it's like the point you make there about, like, yeah, you're, you know, Roe kind of starts off almost in a kind of nihilistic viewpoint. Um, you know, and she's one of my favorite characters on Trek, mm-hmm. I have to say, you know. Uh, and then we, we see her grow through the novels into this command role. And she, I think she, she becomes the officer that Picard always saw yes, in her. Yes. In PNG, you know? It's like she, she, you know, she makes, she makes right the faith he had in her in an episode, you know, and I love the fact that she grows into that character. Uh, and the relationship with Quark is fun because it's just these two opposites. It's the two of them finding each other. You wouldn't think that they, they would ever have a connection, but they do. And that's, that's really fun. And, you know, Quark probably, Quark is the one who changes the least because Quark never changes because Quark is always Quark. But he has, he's still, he's still grown and changed, but there's still part of him that, that remains perfectly the same. And, th- and that was fun to write, just to put him in that situation and have him do something selfless, but kind of still complain about it because that's who he is. And, and that's a, you know, and, and that's the fun moment. And, and I think what, their final scene together, because it's a shared moment of the two of them, if I'd done that separately, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But the fact is the two characters sharing this moment of kind of standing up against this wall of terror coming towards them, that, I think, sort of says a lot about who they are and who they've grown into. Yeah, and it kind of gives them, like, um, a, I, sorry to interrupt, but it just reminds me of, like, a, they have this, like, great Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid type of end to them, which is fantastic for those two characters. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an element of that in there as well. You know, it, it's even to the very end, they're kind of still bantering with each other because that's who they are, you know? And so uh, even if they're, they're, they're facing off against certain deaths, they're not going to lose that. And, and that was fun to write that, that sort of, again, that, that sort of bittersweet moment. And then moving on to what you were saying about Nog, you know, um, the thing I've always loved about his character is the kind of, there's an inherent nobility in him that, it's it's always if you go back and look at the early iterations of the character, you can kind of see it struggling to get out from get past his Ferenginess to get that kind of noble streak out, and and him joining Starfleet is the thing that allows that to kind of blossom. And you know the the, the his his arc throughout this throughout the Ashes of Tomorrow is me trying to touch on that is saying you know putting him in a situation he becomes uh, a captain. In the course of the story, you know, he has to take command of a ship and he has to make hard choices. He has to do the toughest job that any Starfleet officer would ever do. And he absolutely rises to the challenge because that was always in him. And to me, it felt like I had to show that to say that, you know, he he could be this true kind of to, you know, you know, to honorable, upstanding captain. Um, and so it was really great for me to be able to write that moment. In and it's also a kind of, you know, uh, hand on heart. So it's a salute to Aaron Eisenberg as well for, you know, a great actor who we sadly lost. It's, you know, me kind of paying respect to him as much as paying respect Absolutely. to the character. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you did that. Uh, and, and I was thinking about that too, as I was reading that and, and just, it is a, it's a wonderful uh, conclusion to that story for that character. You know, when you think of him coming to Cisco's office and 
desiring to to get into Starfleet and and seeing the progression uh, of him and and I think you know the beauty of that and the beauty of Deep Space Nine in general was just that Star Trek had kind of done the mono alien for so many years where everybody that's in an alien species is basically the same and Deep Space Nine completely broke that apart and said no every part of every species is unique and just because they happen to be Ferengi doesn't mean that they're going to be this and uh or Klingon means this you know like everybody is unique and therefore they can go on their own journey and and Nog's journey was a very special journey and I think you know it, it was a beautiful one at the same time and you know you mentioned something that I really liked you. You talked about the way that Picard had believed in Roe and the officer that she could always be. And in many ways, uh, you know, Dayton had really set this up. And I think this also continues in this book because, you know, I was thinking of it as Picard's next generation. And Picard has been a character to which he has influenced so many of the next generation of Starfleet. And I love the way that we saw that here with his relationship with Bowers. And I thought it was wonderfully done the way that you had Picard supporting this character who was going through the roughest time, you know, just lost a friend, just lost their captain, now is thrust like Nog into that position, having to make the hardest choices of his career because he's basically throwing his career away to follow Picard. And yet Picard is deferential to him on his own starship. He's being his number one being it tactical, doing whatever's like the humility of Picard here, I thought was really beautiful in the way that he was showing, I would say, servant leadership. What it means to truly be a captain is not to just be the person up front all the time, but to be a, a servant leader. And I really appreciated that continuation of that arc for Picard because, you know, it it can it, to me what it shows is that the legitimacy of what you guys did in the books to have him get married to have a family how that's made him a better man a better captain and a better leader i think has been phenomenal and it continued i mean beautifully from the first book to the second book here with his you know um helping bowers i mean you know picard doesn't have anything to prove right you know right. he doesn't <laughs> doesn't need to, after everything he's, he's said and done, all the experiences he's had, Jean-Luc Picard doesn't need to walk onto the bridge of the Aventine and go, well, I'm, you know, I'm a superior author. I've got more experience. I'm in charge, Mr. Powers. You know, he doesn't need that to happen because he doesn't have to prove anything. And everybody on that ship knows who he is. You know, you've got to imagine that, that those younger officers, they probably read his logs in Starfleet Academy, right? You know, Bowers certainly has, right? Bowers has probably gone to lectures that Picard has given, right? And so they all know who he is. And Picard doesn't have to be that guy because he understands what the, like you say, the kind of the idea of like, you know, you don't have to be in charge to lead, you know, that supporting somebody is just as equally valid as being the guy at the front. And that's what he's doing. You know, he, the situation that Sam Bowers finds himself in, you know, that he's, he loses his captain and his friend and he's, you know, and, and he's not expecting it, the rug's pulled out from underneath him. Picard's gone through all of that himself. So he knows exactly where that guy's head is at. And, and also, he knows exactly what he needs at that point in the story. So that's why Picard is filling that role, you know, because he's probably on some level he's thinking, you know, I, when I was in this situation, I didn't have this. So I'm going to give Bowers what I didn't have, which is a strong right arm. You know, somebody 
somebody who can say, well, I'm right here for you. Here's the benefit of my will and experience. You know, he's, he's mentoring him, which is exactly what Sam needs at that point. And Bowers kind of steps into the role and and uh, it becomes a, a moment where instead of him looking at Picard as, I mean, he still honestly respects him as a veteran and superior officer, but there's a moment of kind of, of parity where he treats him like a peer, like, you know, we're on the same level. We're both captains and ships. We're both we're both in the same position. And I think that's a that's a strong moment. And it shows that Picard is the kind of guy who doesn't need, like I say, he doesn't have anything to prove. He doesn't need to be the top dog. He just needs to get the job done. And he helps Bowers find his way towards doing that. Yeah, no, I, I just, as you were talking, I love that idea of like, you know, like you said, Picard doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. And, you know, and, and I was thinking back, you know, uh, the situation that, you know, Picard was in with the Stargazer and all those kind of things and like being thrust into a terrible position. And like you said, maybe not having what he's able to give Bowers. And, and at the same time, you know, um, uh, treat him as an equal, um, you know, that, yeah, we're, we're on this, we are on the same level now and you're having to make the decisions for you and your crew uh, that that I'm having to make, and you know, and 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 right now it's careers be damned because this is too important, and and I I really love that, and I also loved the way in which you know you gave that great moment to Picard and Cisco, you know that they've come so far, and there's that moment of like, you know, I really wish we had had more time together, and it just broke my heart because like. I would have loved to have spent more time with Cisco and Picard together. And and we'll get a little uh, chance of that, I think, here, um, you know, in the third book, hopefully. Um, but those are such different types of captains and yet have, oh, yeah. you know, such uh, like, I, I, yeah, I just want more. Like, this is the problem with these books, James. I just want more and we won't get more. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, you know, well, you know, it's like they always say when you leave the stage, you always leave them wanting more, right? So that's, we, we, I'd much rather go out with you staying, you know, you, you want more than rather than saying, oh, this was enough, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about the different command styles, right, you know, is I think that Bowers is, is kind of like still figuring out his, how, how to be a captain. And he's, he's like, you know, he's figuring it out on the fly throughout the course of this novel. And his, but the model that he's following is Ezra Dax, right? Because that's the captain that, that he's been loyal to. And so he is, he's probably, he's commanding in the same style that Esri commanded in, which is that personable, friendly style. Um, but he's, and, and he's carrying all of the same wounds his crew are carrying because he, you know, Esri was well loved by her crew. And, and in return, she picked uh, the best people for their jobs. Picard's got his style of command. Cisco had his style of command, which, you know, I think, you know, um, in, in the, in the stories of him being captain of the Robinson, I think David kind of tried to feel put like a kind of distance between Picard and his uh, between between Cisco and and his bridge crew, um, which to me I, that never really rang true to me because I didn't feel like that was the kind of guy that Cisco was. So I tried to kind of change the. I figured you know enough time has passed, yes. so that I tried to bring more of a kind of closer connection between you know although we only see them briefly at the beginning of the book uh, with Cisco and, and his bridge crew and. And, and then again, you know, um, I think Nog's command style is very much influenced by Cisco mm -hmm. because that's the guy who was like his first captain, right? You know, the the first guy who he was, 
you know, ever kind of subordinate to. So I like the idea of those kind of those officers kind of imprinting their command style on the people who follow behind them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that is kind of the beauty of this, this, this whole idea of of Star Trek family, right. You know, and um, that, that the, the, the impact that we have, what we leave behind, you know, which is obviously, you know, the, the, the end of Deep Space Nine, um, you know, what we leave behind. And, and Picard even talks about that, you know, in Generations, like, you know, how we lived is so important. And that's what matters because that's what determines what we leave behind is is the choices that we've made. And and so I, I, I think the beauty of the series is watching those thematic elements that have been playing out throughout all of these characters' existence to the end and and that makes uh, is really nice and speaking of that i was thinking about you know the the artificial intelligence angle here that you had with data and law and i was really interested to see that data is basically living the lockdown life uh living vicariously through sensors and that in many ways, Data, even though he's merged with a human form, he's actually become less human, not more human. And it was kind of interesting because Data has is so intelligent, so smart, so based in facts and figures. But the one thing that I realized that Data lacks is, is he has no ability for the human inclination towards faith and i was really struck by that because lol does um I mean, I, and i loved that that's definitely you know showing the the kind of the the position that data is in like where his head is at right um that's me taking from the the cold uh, the cold equations trilogy that they make you know the position of where data was there and i feel like He's kind of grown. If you look at the Android data, the original Android data, he's pre-human. You know, he's he's trying to he's a machine that's trying to be human, and then he kind of becomes human. But this data is post-human, and he's he's you know he, there is a kind of uh, I don't want to say coldness, but that's kind of really the only way I can the only way I can think to to sort of there's an aloofness to him. It's that that sort of Doctor Manhattan kind of thing, Ooh, you know, where nice. he's grown yeah. beyond that. You know, and uh, he's still connected, you know, and he still cares for his friends and he still has love for them and, and, and all of that. But he's grown beyond us. And I think the data I was trying to portray in this story is somebody who is aware of that fact, you know, who if, if this if the if the cosmic threat of this story hadn't happened, he's a guy who's thinking, well, I'm going to live another maybe another million years. And possibly, you know, because technically he's immortal or something, he doesn't kind of trip over and fall, fall into a fusion reactor or something, right? You know, he, if he keeps himself trim, if he replaces his body, Data could be functionally immortal. And that means he outlives everybody he's ever going to know, and he'll make other friends and he'll outlive them. And how does that change your perception of life, right? So the only person who's remotely close to the, the level he's on is Lol. Lol's still going through that. She's at the beginning of that arc. He's much further along it than she is. So she has more of a human connection. And I always felt like the, the, the tragedy of the episode, the offspring, when we see her, 
is that Lala is branching off in a different direction that is much more human, that she's evolving in a very different way. And I wanted to kind of call back to that with, you know, these are these version 2.0s of Lala and Data in this story. But I wanted to call back to their kind of earlier incarnations and say, make it clear that they're, they're evolving in different directions, but they're still true to the, the original direction that the characters were taking. And that's why Data is in this, he's, you know, he's the kind of the genius closed off in his castle, experimenting with things and looking at the world through a telescope. And he's in danger of becoming too isolated. And that is the central kind of argument is Lal is the one saying, we need to go out and get our hands dirty with this issue that's happening. And Data saying, you know, it's already too late. And uh, he's, he's almost got this fatalistic kind of mindset. And so having the two of them sort of express those two points of view, um, you know, kind of helps set the, set the framework for this part of the story. Yeah, there's a beauty in that, too, because, you know, it reminds me of, you know, something that uh, Cisco says to Jake. And he's like, you know, it's life, Jake. You'll miss it if you don't look up every once in a while. And that's that's data is is missing life. You know, he, he life cannot be lived through, you know, screens. It's like, you know, it, data is basically living the Twitter life as if that's a real place. Like that's not real data. Like you know, looking through telescopes and 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 sensors is is not the same as experiencing it for yourself. And again, I love the way you you kind of bring him to like that Doctor Manhattan place because I think that makes so much sense for the character. And I'm fascinated, obviously, to see you know where he'll he'll kind of end up by the time Dave Mack is done. I'm sure it'd be dead, but um, you know, uh, it because it's Dave, but um. And now he gets to kill everybody. Um, but I mean, I think you know, <laughs> Data's arc is kind of goes from being um, a reluctant participant in human in humanity to a kind of full participant, and then he kind of trends back out. And where we find him at this the beginning of the story is he's become an observer, mm-hmm. and that's essentially he's an observer of life. And coming back in this episode, sorry, in this book, um, he becomes a participant again. And you'll see, as you say, you'll see that fully expressed in uh, Oblivion's Gate. Well, and and I did really enjoy, because as you know, we're talking about um, the, the the idea of, you know, Data. I really appreciated, you know, it, it, how Data basically, it, it, this whole story, it really reminded me of what Soren says about, uh, you know, the fire in which we burn, and that's time. And they're definitely in the frying pan right now. And so, you know, Data, though, really kind of, he he mimics Gandalf and McCoy, you know, when he says uh, to Picard, you know, that what we have always strived to do, Captain, defy the odds and go on and face the impossible, you know, and as McCoy would say, turn death into a finding chance to live. And, and I think I love this turn for Data because, you know... Th- it's a beautiful reminder, you know, for all of us that no matter how bleak, we can't lose hope and we have to keep fighting for what's right, regardless of the cost. And um, and even when it feels like everything is burning around us, you know, staying true to those principles. And, you know, I think data is shown by Picard and Bowers and Cisco and all of these other people in this story that and even his daughter, Lull, that if you lose that, you'll lose everything. Um, and, and you might as well just give up, you know? And, and so 
um, and that there are are those things that are worth you know putting your life on the line completely for. Absolutely, that, that I think in a way that moment actually is kind of data channeling me a little bit because um, you know I've, I've said this before that you know when when we first started talking about doing this this trilogy. I was against the idea and I, I, I kind of had a strong reaction against it. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I don't want the game to end, you know, to quote Picard there. And I felt like I didn't want to be involved in it, but it was Dave Mack who brought me around. Dave was, you know, we, we it was one fourth of July. We got together and we had a discussion about this and he kind of pitched the idea to me and he won me over on it. And Data's conversation with Picard, when Picard says to him, we need your help. And then the conversation at the end, that's me and Dave talking. That's me as Data saying, I don't want to do this. And Dave has Picard saying, you need to be part of this. And then at the end of the story, that's me saying, you were right all along. You know, and, and it's so that's kind of like I'm putting a little bit of my own kind of experiences into those characters there. Well, and it and it I think it, it really does remind me of, you know, I feel like in my own life, you know, the past five or 10 years, this, the world in general, it has been this place to where you could just kind of throw up your hands and say, I'm done, you know, like, uh, whatever, I'm done. And um, this, I think, in the face of, of insurmountable odds, that we would still say, no, we're going to keep going, you know, the the John Wayne quote of, you know, uh, courage is being scared to death and saddling it up anyway. And this that's exactly what, you know, they do. Uh, you know, they saddle up and they lock and load the quote data from insurrection and, and they go, you know, and, and they keep going uh, because if we give up the fight, then we have nothing left. And, and I really appreciated that. I, I think, you know, this, this story I think is, is, is timely in that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can say that the whole kind of, you know, do not go quietly into the night, rage against the dying of the light. You know, it's there's definitely a, a kind of sense of that. I mean, one of the the touchstones that I think we've, we've we tried to pick themes that, you know, that, that resonate, like Star Trek always does this with the mythology of Star Trek. It's always, if you scratch the surface, it's talking about deeper issues. And, and definitely the, the issues that are at play in, in these books, if we're talking about, you know, aging and the idea of accepting death, of, of, of loss and, and how you process those things, all of these, you know, these these basic human elements that everybody experiences in their life at some point, all of those are kind of bubbling away under the surface. And Star Trek always kind of tackles real-world issues, you know, in a funhouse mirror. You know, I always say about how, the, you know, you get this warped reflection of reality that we tell in this sci-fi background and you can use it to explore your own feelings about stuff that's happening in the real world. And I certainly feel that some of the story we're doing is like a metaphor for issues like climate change, where people are talking about, you know, here's a here's an existential threat that is huge, that many people it's find it difficult to kind of get a handle on. How do you as an individual affect something like that that affects the entire world? And this is, you know, the cosmic threat in these books, you can see is, is a kind of metaphor for that as well. It's our characters are dealing with this huge threat and they're, you know, they're not sure how to handle it with just the question of individual action. So, you know, I, all of those things I was trying to touch on to, to ground it in, in a sense of reality, as well, you know, as well as telling an exciting Star Trek story, doing what Trek always does best, which is, you know, it connects to the experience that 
we live as regular human people. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, it, it was really interesting, obviously, because, you know, the Federation says you know, no uh, to helping. They're going to deal with the immediate crisis um, and yet not deal with the existential crisis or are the, the true root of the problem. And, you know, I, I think in any way, shape or form for us as human beings, it's definitely easiest to deal with right, what's right in front of us and or, you know, not even deal with that at all. Just stick our heads in the sand and pretend like it's not happening. And so I think, you know, that is that is a excellent reminder of 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 and I think. To me, that's an indication, too, of that we're so focused inward that we're not actually looking at what's happening outward, which is what Data was doing, right? Uh, he's a representation of that. But the Federation here is also a representation of that because they've been through so much and they, they're they so, like, and uh, in, in many ways, it's almost this selfishness of, like, oh, no, we're just going to take care of ourselves. We're just going to look inward. We're just going to, like, make ourselves okay, you know? And and I, I feel like, you know, that's a perfect representation of just the world in general. Like, we're so focused on just ourselves. And it reminds me of, um, you know, Interstellar. You know, we used to look at the stars, but now we're just here digging around in the dirt, you know. And we, we've lost perspective, you know. And I think that pers- that idea of perspective here is really, really important. And I really appreciate that because I think... In many ways, that's that's the only way we're going to get back to where we need to be is if we find a different perspective other than just ourselves. I mean, it's the it's the big picture, small picture thinking. You know, it's it's the, it's, it's hard to think big picture. You know, especially like I mean, you take where we're all of us right now. You know, grasping towards hopefully the end of COVID and lockdown and all this situation that we've been in for the last couple of years, and everybody feels like they've been beaten up. Let's be honest about it. And that's kind of the, the situation the Federation is in. You know, there's this, this litany of stuff that's happened to them over the last few years in the, in the Litverse. And then Picard turns up and goes, oh, guess what? I've got another problem to add to the pile. And you can, you know, you can sympathize with it in a way. You, you know, when the president of the Federation says, haven't we got enough on our plates already? You know, we've got so much to deal with. This is just, this is one, one thing too many. You know, so you can understand why maybe they're saying, let's just deal with what's in front of us because we've got so much to deal with. We don't need another problem. And what Picard says is, you know, you don't have that luxury because this is something that is not going to go away. And as hard as it is, he's like, yes, absolutely, respecting the fact that you've you've taken a lot of hits recently, but this is something you need to deal with right now. And that's where the argument comes. Is it, you know, his insistence that they pay attention to this threat and their insistence that they pay attention to something else. That's what creates the, you know, the tension in the kind of the middle act of the story. Yep. I know. I love that. And I think it, it's so, and it just, it's one of the places, like you said, it's where Star Trek really shines and, and it, it can shine a light uh, in, you know, ways to help us kind of see ourselves better. Uh, and, that that was one of the things I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this idea of shadows because you know with Worf and Riker dealing with being haunted by shadows but being haunted really by the ever presence of many versions of themselves and kind of losing it 
um, where did that idea come from? And, 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 and was that just your way of kind of representing how fear drives us to do things? Or I just real, I was really interested in that. But yeah, there's definitely some of that in there. I, I just like the idea of kind of, you know, being haunted by your own ghost. This is the idea of, of, you know, what they're seeing is the ghosts effectively of parallel versions of themselves from universes that have been consumed or other or universes that are crumbling. You know, the, 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 the acts of the bad guys, the Davidians, where they're, you know, destroying these branching universes, the barriers between realities are becoming permeable and this stuff is starting to bleed over. And people who are susceptible to it, so in this case it's Wolf and Riker are the ones who, who get it in the neck in this story, is they're, they're experiencing shadows of themselves, these, these phantom versions of who they were, alternate reality versions who are dead and gone or, or dying or, or in the process of being destroyed, and that their experiences are bleeding over. And I think it's, there's something... You know, the ghost stories are, are like, you know, uniquely scary because it helps us confront a lot of, of issues about like death and life and the idea of loss. But the, but the science fiction twist on, on saying, well, what if it's not just a ghost, it's your ghost and you are literally staring into the face of your own death and destruction and a parallel version of a life that you never led. Uh, those ideas, I think, are fascinating and, and kind of uniquely chilling. And that's part of uh, what I was hoping for, for this to, to sort of show the, the scope of the threat. We wanted the, the, the threat of the videos and what they're doing to be something that really is kind of terrifying in that kind of way that you know, makes your stomach flood with ice, makes your blood run cold. Not just, it's not just a bad guy with a gun. It's, it's an existential cosmic threat. And we wanted to make it feel, feel that, have that sort of degree of truth to it. And the ghost thing, I think, really kind of plays well into that whole metaphor. Well, I loved that, you know, it made so much sense because Worf has had that that experience with multiple versions of reality. And right. with Riker, did it come from the idea of his being split in the transporter and that that's what would make him more susceptible to, um, you know, th- this happening to him specifically? Or is it more the fact that he obviously has a different version of himself in the Picard universe as we know it now because of the television show. I think it's like, you know, um, we kind of, it, it, I felt it would be clear to the reader that, you know, that there is, there's multiple iterations of Riker because we've seen them. And Data had also played with that in, uh, in Headlong Flight, you know, where we saw the, uh, an iteration of him there. And he wanted to call back to that. And we had this um, scenario that we wanted to do where we wanted to, we wanted to put Riker and Picard on, on opposite sides of the argument because that's something that we haven't really seen before. The idea of putting a, a character in, in, a, in a strongly adversarial situation. And we wanted to give, essentially give Riker an excuse to go full bad moral. And it's, well, how are we going to do that? And how are we going to, because everybody's going through the ringer in the story. And Riker's particular kind of journey through this is that he's being exposed to this alternate version of himself and it's taking him to these darker places. And so that's the, that's the journey that we wanted to take him on. And, and so the, the idea of it expressing itself through the, you know, the, these sort of quantum reality ghosts uh, just kind of dovetailed perfectly with the direction we wanted to take him in. Well, and in many ways, I think the beauty of that too is that 
it shows how fear can drive us, right, to do terrible things, you know, and do things that we never thought that we would do, which is Riker being on the opposite side of Picard in an issue, you know, and, and part of that is because it is this, it really is almost this irrational fear of things that haven't happened to this this Riker, but it's the the, you know, your mind just running wild with possibility. Um, and obviously, you know, when you have the multiverse and you have multiple possibilities for characters um, and having that f- and affect him specifically here, I think it really works. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens to him in the end, um, because will he make a turn? Will he come back? Will he, you know, because, you know, Worf is able to have Spock help him through this in the story, whereas, you know, Riker doesn't. The only person who could probably get through to him would be Troy, really. And so will she be able to make that, uh, you know, connection with him? It'll be fascinating to see. So and I do have to say, just with the shadows thing, I really appreciate I know some people knocked Dayton for not allowing a wharf to have his moment with the death of Esri. And I really appreciated that because these stories are connected, you can't I don't think really judge any one of you until the story is completed because it is a full you know three-part story uh in much the way that you know you wouldn't judge the whole uh enterprise augments arc with episode one you gotta wait till it's you know the full arc is done because it's really one story and so i really appreciated the fact that he had that moment um and especially him calling alexander and um you know because He's so rattled and and Worf in many ways, like Bashir, has lost everybody he's ever loved. Like everyone he's loved has died. Like he's he's like a he's like a bad penny. You don't want to be with Worf, uh, you know, so and I really appreciated you kind of also allowing us to have some kind of connection and closure with Worf and Alexander because of that as well. You know, giving us that that relationship with them to kind of fully come full circle like you know, they're in a much different, much better place. And um, I, to see that emotion from both of them as well was fantastic. So I really appreciated giving Worf that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with your point there. Um, it's it's unfair to say, like, you know, Dayton didn't play off that bit with Worf because that wasn't his job. It was mine. And like I said, you know, this entire storyline is the creation of me, Dave and Dayton. So uh, the, the payoff of Worf's emotional beat in my story is as much written by Dayton as it is written by me as it is written by Dayton. This is a creation of the three of us. Just because you see different names on the books, it doesn't mean that each book is wholly, singularly the creation of a single writer. This is a collaborative effort through and through. So, you know, Dayton, I mean, Dayton has uh, had a hard job with moments because he had to build the kind of the, 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 the base upon which I, I kind of like, you know, I, he builds the base, I expand it out, and then Dave brings everything kind of across the finish line. So each of us have a, a, a different, um, a key, different, difficult task to, to prove it. And Dayton had to lay out the kind of table for all of this. So, um, you know, his, his book is obviously going to have a different tonality to mine, and Dave's book is going to have a different tonality again because we're performing all these different roles. We, we wanted to make sure that all of the emotional beats are going to be in there in the story as much as we can possibly manage it. And and that did mean breaking them up, you know, mm-hmm. so that's why Worf's 
moment, his, his kind of moment of grief about Esri, we see that reflected. He because he never really externalizes it because he's the stoic Klingon exactly. guy. You know, you know he's not going to be walking the corridors wailing and weeping. That's just not who he is. But we see it through Alexander's eyes because Alexander is you know because he's his son and he's perceptive and he understands how his father's mind works. You know, he has that moment where you know not only does he realize how much this affects Worf because he's not. I mean, you know, he's lost Kayla. He's lost, uh, you know, Jasminda Chowdhury, who was another character that, you know, that uh, that Worf was was romantically involved with. And then he's lost and he loses Jadzia. And then when Esri dies, it's like he's lost Jadzia all over again because uh, Esri's death is also the death of Dax Symbiote. So it means right. that the very last traces of Jadzia are gone from the universe. Yes. Is that now Jadzia only exists in the memories of the people who knew and loved her. So for Worf, it's like she dies all over again, you know, and it's hard for him to take. But because he's a stoic guy, he's he's going to put all that inside. He's going to channel all that inwards. But because Alexander is a much more human character, Alexander immediately kind of reaches for that and he finds it. You know, there's the moment where uh, Worf is talking about the, the threat that's going on and Alexander realizes that he's keeping something from him. And he's, he's and he realizes his, his line is something like he know he's seen something terrible, and his first action is to keep it from me, to protect me, and that's like what Wolf is always doing is he's like you know he he internalizes a lot of stuff not always for the better, because he feels like that's he has to be a warrior protector character, and that to me felt like that's true to his the, the to his character that he would internalize a lot of how he feels about the loss of Ezri and, and Jadz and by extension Jadzia. Yeah, I I just really appreciated, you know, the way that you guys are are doing the best to the best of your ability in the space that you have to to give these characters their moments. And, you know, I think that obviously that's so evident in the in the way that, that that's being taken care of. And I really appreciated that. And I, I loved this moment because and and one of the harkening back to our beginning of the conversation talking about deep space nine you know what we get here is is something really beautiful in the sense that there's prophecy fulfilled and you know the the struggle and the 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 tension of faith and science uh and all, all of those type of things that deep space nine dealt with so wonderfully i thought it felt like you guys did and you specifically dealt with that really well here and about you know, how the prophecy of the prophets is fulfilled, you know, and in a way that n nobody really would have pictured, but it, it actually is. And we, f we have the, the, the tears of the prophets. Um, but we also have the end of the tears of the prophets because the orbs are, are dead now. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Um, I would be okay if they're not because, um, we, there was the, the, and I remember in the Picard, trailer for season two there is some allusions to bajoran artifacts in that so maybe there's something to that i don't know but what i loved about this is that the prophets themselves are willing to do the right thing regardless of the cost in the face of you know universal armageddon in the face of universal opposition they're willing to, and they have the courage to do what is necessary. And I thought that, you know, 
of all the godlike characters that we've seen in Star Trek, these are the most godlike in the sense that they're willing to make the sacrifice for their people, right? You know, it, it's it, it, it. There's a lot of a Christian illusion in there, which I, I I really appreciated. But they're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice so that the, that the people that they care about and the universe as a whole could could live. I I love that. I thought that was really beautiful. I mean, the, the prophets are not. Uh... They're not vengeful and angry gods. I mean, although some uh, Bajoran prophecy kind of like you know points towards the darker end of the spectrum. To me, the the, the sense of the of the, uh, the the prophets as deities to the Bajoran people was always that they were uh, educators and teachers and shepherds guiding them. And to me, it seems like a logical progression that you know that that would be if they have that kind of parent figure role. A parent eventually passes, parent eventually sacrifices themselves for their children. That seems to me to be like a logical progression for the characters. And of course, we've got to remember that the the uh, the, the prophets are atemporal creatures, right? They don't they exist out of time. Time doesn't pass right. them. So they already knew this was going to happen because they because they live all moments right. simultaneously. They from the very start, this was always for them was already always destined. So they knew it was going to happen. And, you know, if, if you look at it through the lens of that idea and how that affects Cisco as the emissary and, and Kira as the hand of the prophets, it puts a kind of very different spin on things to consider that the prophets were already always going to be sort of part of the resolution of this problem, at least, you know, at, at, in the events of the second book. Yeah, I, I loved it. I thought it worked really, really well. And, you know, I think... It was one of those moments, too, that in the story where it just really hit me, especially as a Deep Space Nine fan, to, to just see, you know, this this end of these these characters in, in that way. And, you know, something that's been so important to the series overall. And I think something really beautiful in, in, in the fact of allowing Star Trek to have a really honest conversation about, like, faith and science and and. and and all of those type of things in a way that Star Trek had never had before. Um, and, and it was just really beautiful. Um, and so obviously one of the big things is wrapping up those dangling threads. And um, one that uh, has been noticed obviously here from the uh, Typhon Pack books is the Enduring Cloning Crisis. You at least mention it <laughs> um, here, which was fantastic. So, just love to hear you as somebody who's been so immersed in writing the lit verse for so long at this point on that point and any others that you felt like you just were really pleased of getting a, a chance to kind of put some kind of closure to. Well, we, you know, early on when we were talking about this, we, we kind of made a list and said like, you know, look, what's, what's all the major dangling threads that people are going to want to see resolved and, and, you know, and how many of these can we do without, cramming too much stuff in and also i i wanted to as much as possible nod somewhere in every if we can do it in every book every iteration every incarnation of lit verse stories if there's some way we can just name check characters or ships or places even if it's just a line of dialogue just so we can say we see you we respect what you did we salute the story that you wrote just to try and sign off on all those things so you know it's like do we give, we, we mentioned the, the USS Prometheus from the Prometheus novels. We'll talk about, 
you know, can we get a mention of the uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers and the USS Da Vinci? You know, I wrote in a scene with the 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 um, the Klingon touching on um, mm-hmm. Keith yep. Canada's Klingon uh, Empire novels with those characters. This is uh, it's showing here's here's them doing their thing. You know, to as much as we possibly could to try and cross connect to everything that's come before. Um, the only thing we kind of kept at arm's length is was the Voyager stories, and that was specifically because Kirsten Beyer asked us to do that. Because if you've been reading the uh, the Voyager narrative, you know that those books come to a conclusion with the Voyager crew and the fleet uh, kind of going off out into extragalactic space to have their own adventures. And what we didn't want to do was undo all of that and say, oh, we're going to bring them all back, back to the Alpha Quadrant to deal with this problem, because it would feel like it was a kind of betrayal of everything that, that Kirsten had done with those characters. So... Uh, you know, you won't see many of the Voyager characters in this series. We are, we have got a few Voyager characters who turn up throughout the novel, but the Voyager crew have gone off and done their own thing and, and they're out there in space. So that was, you know, that idea of, of respecting the choices that have been made by other authors, we tried to do that as much as we possibly could and still keep the series coherent. And part of that was, you know, just little nods and winks as well. So the Andorian... Um, Cloning Crisis, which I think is, um, I can't remember the title of the book it's in. It's in Seize the Fire, because we actually just covered that uh, on on Literary Treks. And, um, you know, if the Litverse had kept on going, you know, I've got to be honest with you, I had a pitch for a Titan novel, and I wanted to tie that up. I wanted to go back and say, well, here's what happened with that. And, uh, you know, uh, fate means we're not going in that direction. But I thought, damn it, if I can just get a reference in there, so there is a line of dialogue where someone references a, you know, um, a cloning scandal taking place on Andor. And that is, again, me just saying, you know, we didn't forget. We didn't forget about that. We do pay respect to it. Okay, so I have to ask, what was your solution then? Obviously, it'll never happen, but what, what was your thought process for that Titan novel? Well, I wanted to, I wanted to basically I wanted to bring back the, the duplicate characters. And, uh, and, and and kind of play play some of the notes that they did in Second Chances, the Riker, Riker duplicate episode, where, um, you know, you think that some of the characters are going to get killed off and replaced and then not take the easy out and give them, you know, and give those characters their own life and the opportunity to, to kind of go off and have their own sort of existence. Um, I really like the idea of having some, you know how the, um, the Andorians have got like the, the multiple genders yes, yeah. and they have like a kind of marriages yeah. with like, a, you know, I can't remember, is it like four people in an Andorian mm-hmm. marriage? Or is it five? Four. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of, uh, I don't think it would work because of the, the, the genders of the characters, but I like the idea of being, one of the marriages being four of the same person. And I thought that would be just an interesting kind of idea to play with, you know, but uh but no, we never got to explore that. It was, it was kind of a, uh, I didn't have the idea fully formed, but I would have liked to have explored the uh, possibilities with that. But it's a missed opportunity, sadly. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that's really fun, um, the way that you did all that. I mean, I, you mentioned the fact that we have a couple of characters here that you did get to play with from Voyager, you know, Tom and Bellana, because they did come home. You know, that they, they didn't want to, to transverse the universe to another universe. Uh, they They felt... Like they wanted to raise their kids on Earth, and and uh, so I loved getting to. Pl- I, Tom is my favorite character in Enterprise, and so getting to have him here and getting to have his mischievousness play off 
as beneficial, you know, to Picard and the, and the rest of the the crew there was fantastic. I, he was the perfect person to play that joke. Um, and I also, I just really liked uh, the the little joke that you made about him and Wesley. You know, like have we met before? Like, you know, it's just that that's been staring me in the face for years. I just why has nobody ever just touched that? And said, like, you know, gone on the nose and gone, why? <laughs> you look like this guy. It's great. You know? I mean, and I, I mean, it's it's not the first time we've had characters in Star Trek played by the same actor, right? You know, it's like um, I'm trying to remember the, the two act, the two characters, like Doctor Anne Mulhall meeting, you know, Catherine Pulaski, you know, and they're both because they're both Diana Muldaur, and there was the other character that Diana Muldaur played in the original series, having those three women meeting each other, going, oh, you look familiar. Um, I always liked. I like the character of Nick Lacano in in the TNG, and then of course you know we have Tom Paris turn up, uh, and I always thought it would be fun to just sort of tick that box to have those characters have that sort of conversation. So it's just a it's just a little meta, meta gag me kind of indulging myself there. Well, because I yeah. figured you know, this might be the last chance I get to do and it. Why right? not? You know, I mean, absolutely, why not at this point? So I mean, there's, I've, I've got to be honest. There's there's a bunch of meta jokes in there as well. Um, there's a few, and, there, and you know, it's not going to be a Jim Swallow Star Trek novel unless I put a couple of obscure references in there to stuff. Um, there's even a reference in there to a very obscure uh, 60s, a German 60s night sci-fi series that was kind of regarded as the, the German equivalent of Star Trek. Uh, Space Patrol, if you know that show, there's a little reference in there to that, which is something I always wanted to do because it's kind of in the same sort of wheelhouse. And, and, and I did have a German fan message would be going that's is this great. What a reference to this? Oh, yes it is well done for spotting it that's awesome so there's, there's there's a few gags in there there's um there are some very obscure nerd references um so anybody out there feel free to to pick your way through the book see if you can find them all um there's no prize or anything but it's yeah. you know, it's, it's always fun to look <laughs> that really is fantastic though uh and i i think you know it's one of the places where if you guys can't have a little bit of fun with this, when else would you be able to? And I think it's completely and and thankfully, you know, I, there is a little bit of levity there. You know, you you totally want that. Um, and so, and I think that's really important in a series like this. You you do want there to be uh, a little bit of levity or a little bit of fun in it as, 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 as difficult as the books are and as heart wrenching as they are. So I just really think it's, it's fantastic, um, in that way. So, well, you know, James, I, I think I wanted to give you the opportunity, you know, as we come to the close of the lit verse in say anything you wanted, like just, this is just your free time to like, what is all this meant to you? What, how, you know, where are you and, and what are you hoping for, you know, for the future now that, you know, this part of your writing career in Star Trek is coming to an end? You know, um, one of the things we, we talked about when we were, again, when we were having the early discussions about what we were going to write is I said that, you know, we should, we should sign off each of these books. And, uh, and we've each written an afterword in, in each of the books. I think Dayton had never done one before, but he really felt like it was important to do one for this. And I've done the same thing and so has Dayton. And we've, we've written, I think, if you want an explanation, if you want an answer to that question in full, 
read that in the back of the book because that kind of I think that's the we, we talk about how our influences on these novels but we also talk about uh, what Star Trek has meant to us to me um, it's like I said at the top of the show you know I'm sad that, that we're at the end of this but I'm, I'm so happy I've been able to take the journey and uh, all of this comes from a place of love even though we've, we've done some bleak and terrible things in these novels let's be quite honest these are stories about carrying light through the darkness and being able to write that, being someone who's been gifted with the opportunity to tell those stories. It's been a fantastic part of my career. And, and it is daunting and exciting to be kind of where we are. We are, like you say, we are turning the page here. And I was discussing this with somebody else and I, and I kind of put it in terms uh, like the people talk about the ages of comic books. They talk about the, the golden age of comics uh, you know, which you used to get in the 40s and the 50s, and then you had, like, the, the Silver Age and the Bronze Age, and they talk about these different eras of, of, like, the history of Marvel and DC Comics, and I think that kind of lends itself well to, if you think of Star Trek fiction, mm-hmm. is the golden age of Trek fiction was, like, the James Blish novelizations and the, the Bantam books, and then the, the Silver Age was this early pocketbook stuff where, you know, we didn't have an interconnected continuity, but we had a lot of really great writers working for us. And then we had the Bronze Age, which is the kind of post-Avatar lipverse where, thanks to, you know, the guidance of Marco Palmieri and editors who followed after him, we had an interconnected, contiguous universe. And now that's come to a conclusion. What happens next? What are we in next? Is it the, the Platinum Age, right? What's mm-hmm. the, what stories are we going to tell from there? Um, I hope this is not the end of my Trek odyssey because I love writing Star Trek stories and, and I hope I'll get to tell more of them. I feel honored that I've been able to kind of shepherd it to this point in the end of the story, that I've been able to be part of this, this grand conclusion. Um, and I'm thankful to have the opportunity and I'm thankful to have a readership, a dedicated readership who continue to read the books because at the end of the day, as a writer, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. You, you want to be able to tell your stories and have an audience for them. Star Trek enables me to do that in a, in a great and unique way. And uh, I feel very lucky to have had the journey that I've had, and I hope it doesn't end here. I, I mean, I, I hope the same thing. You know, I, I think it getting to you know do this with literary tracks and and having the opportunity to have you know spent time with with so many of of the authors has been a real joy. It, it's been uh, so much fun, and you know, I, I'm obviously thankful you know that um you know you've continued to write in star trek you've already done a picard novel and so you know i, I think uh, and i i loved that book and and i'm eagerly anticipating what you guys have you know up your sleeves next but um i'll always be thankful for you because you know, of course you 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 may be a part of star trek by naming an andorian ship after me which was pretty phenomenal um and it's actually on my wall um so uh I, I didn't blow it up in the book as well. So I could Thank still you be so much. Somewhere. I appreciate that uh, for, for, for not destroying my Andorian vessel. Um, but I, I, you know, part of, I think this for me just in general has, has been, you know, uh, this part of, of, of Star Trek coming to a close and it's been really emotional, you know, because of the experience of, of, of reading the books, but also having the opportunity to get to know, the authors in the way that I have have been really blessed in that. So um, just from, from myself and everybody who's been involved with, with literary treks over the years, I just want to say thank you um, because 
right back. You up. know, it's it's meant the world to us, um, and I, I just have always appreciated you know your time. And, uh, you know, your willingness to, to spend time with us to talk about the, these books and that you've written and, and share, you know, the behind the scenes of, of the inner workings of, of what it means to write these type of stories. And but I also want to say that I appreciate your dedication and care for these characters and the stories for the years. Um, and, you know, Thank you. it wouldn't be what it is without all of you involved, not just yourself, obviously. And so I really appreciate that. So before we get out of here, James, as always, you know, where can people find you uh, online? And, um, you know, is there anything that you do uh, have coming up next that people should be looking for? Um, I do actually have a new Star Trek project. It's only a small little thing. Just come out uh, this week. The new Star Trek Explorer magazine, which is uh, the rebranding of the official Star Trek publication. Uh, It's going to have short fiction in every issue. And, uh, and I did a short story, just a little 2,000-word little short story, um, which was a lot of fun for me to do. One of the things I've been trying to do in my Trek writing career is I'd like to kind of collect a set and write, write a story for every kind of incarnation of Star Trek. It's a little difficult because they keep adding new shows yeah. <laughs> and they're kind of moving the goalposts further and further away from me. But um, I got the opportunity to do an Enterprise story because I've never had the opportunity to write those characters. So it's a little short story. It's called The Offer. It's uh, It's got Jonathan Archer and Q in it. Oh, wow. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing that. So that's in the, that's in the new issue. Issue one of Star Trek Explorer. That's on sale right now. Um, beyond that, uh, Outside the Final Frontier, I've got my new Mark Dane action thriller novels just come out as well. Um, uh, if people want to find me, same place as always, come to my official website, jswallow.com. That's pretty much a one-stop shop for everything you need to know about me and my books and what's coming out. Or you can come find me at JM Swallow on Twitter, where uh, I'm always open to chat about Trek or, or writing or whatever people are interested in. Awesome. And of course, uh, you know, you can find me all over the place on social media, Matt Rushing 2 uh, You can also find me here on the network doing the 602 Club, which is our whole other side of the network as we talk about all the fandoms we love. So I hope you will join us there. Uh, you can also find uh, the bonus shows there with Snyder Cuts and Assembling Avengers that we're doing. Uh, also doing Warp 5 and The Orb here on the network. Uh, Warp 5, of course, about Star Trek Enterprise as we're walking through the entire series to celebrate its 20th anniversary. And, of course, The Orb's about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then over on the Nerd Party Network uh, did Owl Post with Drea Kaufman where we uh, finished that show, talked about all of the... Uh, chapters of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then, of course, doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.